the biggest thing we can do is to move away from uh, intensive these intensive agriculture systems uh, just because it's kind of diff- it's very difficult to raise this many animals in this sort of enclosed space and not um, you know kind of have it become a powder keg. Today, you're with Mira and Vijetha. And we'll be talking about the book, Bird Flu, A Virus of Our Own Hatching, by Dr. Michael Greger. This book is, through my first read, I thought it was fantastic. One of the things I really liked about the book is how much detail it has. It goes in in depth tracing the origins of pandemic influenza. It talks about the history of pandemic influenza. It talks about the 1918 flu pandemic, for example. And it also even has a section on pandemic preparedness for what we can do when a flu pandemic hits us, how we can prepare for it. How, what should we do? What would you say was the number one thing that Dr. Greger recommended? Well, Dr. Greger has a number of recommendations in this book. He, in fact, has on page 316 to 317, two pages devoted to a checklist on how to plan for a pandemic and includes suggestions such as storing supplies of food and water, teaching your children to wash their hands frequently, keeping certain foods and non-perishables on hand, as well as medical health and emergency supplies, like portable radios, flashlights, fluids with electrolytes, thermometers, vitamins, tissues. It's very, very thorough, actually, on not just telling you the history of pandemic influenza, but also telling you that it's inevitable and you really just have to prepare for it. Isn't that scary? It is scary. It's really scary for us since we both work in healthcare. Do you think we'll be the first ones to die? If we don't wash our hands, yes. yes oh, no. We will. <laughs> so, it's good I wash my hands every day. Good. I thought it was interesting how he described the 1918 pandemic in relation to the Black Plague. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and the thing about the Black Plague is there were probably some geographic barriers at the time where that kept, you know, kept it from spreading beyond a certain point. But when the flu pandemic hits us now, I mean, humans have transcended our boundaries. Like, we can fly from one country to another in a matter of a day. So matter what, of hours. Matter of hours. So what does that mean for us if a virus hits us? I mean, it means that it can go very fast from one place to another and there's very little to stop it. So our special guest on today's episode is the author of this book. Are you excited to meet him? So excited. So excited. So we're actually going to do a remote interview with Dr. Michael Greger. So we're really sorry if the sound quality isn't the same as our previous episodes because our previous episodes were in person and this is our first attempt at a remote podcast interview. So Michael Greger, Dr. Michael Greger is the Director of Public Health and Animal Agriculture at the Humane Society of the United States. As an internationally recognized lecturer on public health issues, he has presented at the Conference on World Affairs, the National Institutes of Health, the Bird Flu Summit, and countless other symposia and institutions. He was invited as an expert witness in defense of Oprah Winfrey at the infamous, quote-unquote, meat defamation trial. 
Dr. Greger is a graduate of Cornell University School of Agriculture, as well as Tufts University School of Medicine. To find out more information about this book, you can go to www.birdflubook.com. You can find this entire book in an easy-to-read article format. You can find out information about Dr. Michael Greger's speaking engagements, news and information about bird flu, and a complete list of citations, clickable hyperlinks, and an index of topics. Okay, so Dr. Greger, um, we really enjoyed reading your book, but first we want to hear a little bit more about you as a person and what got you interested, not just in being a physician, but in these public health elements. Oh, you know, it was actually, um, uh, I did my postgraduate medical training at uh, the Lemuel Shattuck, which is a public health hospital. In fact, I think the only public health hospital left in Massachusetts after a few uh, Republican gubernatorial terms. And, um, you know, because of that, I just saw the most horrible infectious diseases day in, day out. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a second. I mean, when I was growing up, there's no such thing as HIV AIDS. Like, where did this thing come from? And that's what really started me kind of looking into uh, the emergence, uh, what was behind the emergence of disease, kind of went on from there in terms of exploring the risk factors for the emergence of infectious disease. Um, What made you specifically interested in avian flu? You know, so we're talking about uh, really the only infectious disease that we know of that can infect literally billions of people in a matter of months. I mean, you know, there's nothing that comes close. So, I mean, this is the disease with kind of the greatest public health uh, implications. And, and at the time when I started this, there was this new virus on the block, um, this H5N1 virus in poultry populations, uh, um, particularly in uh, East Asia, um, that had this kind of remarkable case fatality rate. Now, of course, case fatality rate is difficult. I mean, you'd never know exactly what the denominator is. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the best estimates were something on the order of 50%. So, you know, it's kind of a flip of a coin. Um, The few people that got infected um, directly from infected chickens of whether or not they'd live through this disease. So wait a second, 50% fatality for the flu? I mean, mean, that's just, you know, know, I mean, there's strains of Ebola around the 60, 70%. So it raised for the first time this possibility of the worst of both worlds, the most transmissible virus known um, with one of the deadliest viruses known, and should one get easy human-to-human transmissibility of a virus like H5N1, which retained even a fraction of its lethality, I mean, that would be an existential crisis. I mean, it could could be much worse um, these days. And so, I mean, that's what really kind of sparked me on that journey and say, well, okay, well, wait a second, what was happening to foster the growth of just this unparalleled explosion of highly pathogenic, highly disease-causing strains of avian influenza? And then, of course, there was all this, then, then we had uh, H1N1, the swine flu, and, uh, and trying to tease out what had changed to change the kind of ecology and evolution of these viruses for this kind of unprecedented kind of explosion of new viruses 
Um, and, you know, every time we spin that roulette wheel, that kind of genetic roulette wheel, you know, the concern is that one day we will end up um, with uh, a truly catastrophic virus. And so what can we do to prevent it? And uh, that really gets back to um, the ways uh, and it includes a lot of things about trade and includes a lot of things about deforestation, all sorts of things. But in terms of influenza, has to do a lot to do with the intensification of animal agriculture around the world. Dr. Greger, I know that we, you've been talking a lot about the 1918 virus and H5N1, and as you said, about uh, the order of 15 million people died in 1918, um, which I believe is more than the Black Plague. Why do you believe this epidemic was overlooked in the medical society? It's really, it was so bad. It was so traumatic that we kind of erased it from history. It was actually really interesting for me to go to the National Library of Medicine's, you know, they have this historical archives, um, and they have, uh, and, you know, here I have the National Archives, and so in writing the book, my, uh, my book on bird flu, I was able to look through footage and pictures and, I mean, and, and you could see these, you know, the, the mass graves. And, I mean, I mean, it was just almost kind of too horrific to imagine. And, you know, and maybe that was just part of this kind of collective um, amnesia about this most devastating of human events. And no, at no time do more people die in so short a time than the 1918 pandemic. We still talk about the Black Plague, but we rarely talk about the 1918 virus season. Right, and look, the Black Plague was caused by a bacterium, which we have antibiotics that can cure. And it's not like the plague has gone away, but we can treat it, we can cure it. Though unfortunately, that's not the same thing with um, uh, these viruses, the uh, current antiviral uh, medications that we have um, for influenza are poor at best. Um, and so it's really a matter of much of the research has been going to kind of secondary prevention, you know, trying to, you know, trying to reduce the uh, morbidity mortality. How quickly can we get uh, vaccine capacity um, ramped up, whereas I want to take a, you know, have people take an extra step back to primary prevention. That's a really great point, because it looks like we, we tend to look at public health problems a little bit too far downstream, like focusing on hand washing rather than focusing on the, the genesis aspect, as you were discussing. You do want to focus on the prevention. Do you believe that viruses are too smart for us, though? They keep changing. What's causing them to change? What's causing them to change are environmental pressures, or you know, uh, you know, selective pressures. So, for example, the fact that we were feeding chickens amantadine, this antiviral drug, you know, uh, has resulted in the viruses flooding out of Asia, which are resistant to the antiviral drug. Because of that selective pressure, um, there was the the the, the push to genetically drift away, to, to become uh, resistant to that class of drugs. Um, and similarly, we are, um, so for example, uh, you know, chickens, uh, land-based, galliform, are not a natural reservoir for this virus. The natural reservoir for this virus is aquatic birds, waterfowl, shorebirds, 
Um, this is an aquatic virus. It's a gastrointestinal aquatic virus. It's not, in its natural state, a respiratory virus. However, when we force this virus into an unnatural environment, um, into basically a petri dish with you know uh, you know half a million chickens in one shed sharing one basically you know half a million people stuck in an elevator basically um, the the virus is forced to change the virus is forced to adapt and be, by becoming highly pathogenic it's able to spread to other organs like the lungs and become an airborne pathogen making it more dangerous both for the chickens and potentially for people as well. And so we are driving some of this. Now, some of it is just kind of random, and, the, and we may not be able to do anything about that. But some of it is being pushed in dangerous directions by the way in which we are now doing um, animal agriculture. Okay, yeah, that's actually that's all um, very interesting because I had no idea about the fact that it was originally an aquatic virus. And and a, and a harmless virus. Ducks don't get sick. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, I mean and it's in, the, it's in the virus's, you know, best interest not to make the duck sick, right? And then the duck migrate and spread it around to other, but I mean, it was this kind of nice, kind of balanced, kind of homeostasis, everybody's happy, but until it gets into some, you know, um, uh, to another species where the virus is just forced to um, kind of change its modus operandi. That's very, very interesting. I had no idea about that. So I kind of wanted to point out, though, that in the 1918 flu pandemic, there was a lot less global travel commercially available to people. So obviously, what you're hinting at is that it's going to be much worse in a, in a potential flu pandemic situation in modern society. Is that correct? Well, there was a tremendous amount of global travel. Why? Because it was the end of World War One. So we had... Um, so we were bringing all our troops back. I mean, so we had this massive, these massive migrations of people um, from these kind of trench warfare, very unhygienic environments. Um, uh, I mean, it, so, so we kind of put everybody together and then we dispersed them back. And so for the time, there was actually remarkable movement, but certainly now that happens every day. I mean, right. a virus is less than 24 hours away anywhere on the planet right now. It can end up on our doorstep. And so, yes, absolutely. We're much more connected. We have these mega cities um, where um, uh, viruses can spread uh, more quickly. Um, and so, absolutely, we need better diagnostics. We need to catch stuff earlier. There's all sorts of, you know, we need a, you know, it would be amazing to get some kind of, uh, you know, generic flu vaccine that worked at some, you know, at some fundamental level that didn't have to be changed every year. There's lots of work to be done. But the fact that this has the potential to be, uh, you know, kind of present this existential crisis, um, then... It really behooves us to do everything in our power. We don't want to be in a situation post-pandemic looking back and saying, is there anything we could have done differently to prevent this? And there's just a handful of species that are susceptible. Unfortunately, two of those species, um, you know, pigs and chickens, are um, animals that we make billions of every year. Um, and keep them in conditions that, uh, uh, you know, uh, fosters the spread and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and pathogenicity of these viruses. Or what are some steps that globally we can take in order to 
avoid situations and pandemics such as these? Um, the biggest thing we can do is to move away um, from uh, intensive um, uh, these intensive agriculture systems uh, just because it's kind of diff- it's very difficult to raise this many animals in this sort of enclosed space and not um, you know kind of have it become a powder keg. Um, and so look, every um, essentially every seven weeks in this uh, world, um, all the uh, all the chickens are reborn, right? Uh, chickens only uh, live about six, seven weeks. Um, broiler chickens, meat meat-based chickens, only live about six, seven weeks before they're slaughtered. And so every six or seven weeks, we're putting, we're plunking down another uh, few tens of billions, um, and uh, and you know that can that can change any time. In the very least, that should be a priority of breeding companies to not just make animals that um you know accrue breast mass breast meat mass the fastest feed efficiency but immune function we should be breeding chickens that are um uh, more disease resistant we could trans transgenically create perhaps an influenza uh, immune chicken um uh, i mean there's because of the consolidation of the poultry industry, actually, most of the chickens in the world, actually just a handful of companies produce the genetic stock. Um, and so they could change their priorities for breeding. We could move away from chicken. There's lots of things we can do as a society. And that was actually, there's this um, famous editorial in the American Journal of Public Health, um, uh, uh, the APHA journal, that called for... Um, us to basically stop eating chickens like it's that serious of a risk mm-hmm. that look you know uh, cows don't get the flu um have a steak instead of kfc or i mean from the perspective of chronic diseases it's like these other types of meats have their own issues and i think you know public health is becoming more open to the idea of a plant-based diet as the ultimate good chickpeas instead of chicken exactly How's that? that's much better <laughs> <laughs> I do have a question for you. Do you have any thoughts on the cost of plant-based diets for our listeners? How how do we make it more affordable to the masses? A lot of people say plant-based diets are very expensive. Do you have any solutions to that, especially? I mean, you know, you know cabbage is like a dollar a pound, a pound of food for a dollar. Like, um, some of the healthiest foods are some of the cheapest. You know, uh, you know, healthy food doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, you can buy uh, uh, frozen uh, vegetables, um, uh, which is often cheaper. You can buy in season, farmers markets, lots of ways. That's pretty great. I think one of the questions I have for you is, how realistic do you think it is that we'll avert this crisis, um, given yeah, where we are? Crisis. Yes. The chronic disease crisis. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm specifically focusing on infectious disease right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's up to us. It's up to uh, the public health community to make this a priority and to remember. In fact, you know, you'd think with the centennial, there'd be like conferences, influenza conferences. Like, I don't know, it would be like a bigger deal um, than, uh, oh, remember the worst epidemic in human history? Remember? <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and, and that kind of ignite research in this area. There's already um, good work being done. I'm afraid of the 
In terms of politically, there may be very little to do in the current climate in terms of regulatory action. Right. Um, but uh, it, from a, at a consumer level, there's things we can do. The, 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 the corporate level, there's things um, that can be done to uh, try to make a safer food supply. But Jaytha and I would unfortunately be the first to die since we both work in large hospitals. But I'm kind of hoping that isn't the case and that we'll actually do something before then. Wash your hands. Yes, I will wash my hands. I will wash my hands wash as well. And so, washing your hands after touching public surfaces before touching your mucous membranes is the way to prevent the flu.